Welcome to Optimist in Progress. I'm Tom Johnston and with me is my co-host, Dr. Drea Lettermendi. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here with you. In this episode, we're in conversation with Krista Simmons, LA-based culinary travel writer, storyteller and producer founder of Fork in the Road Media. You no doubt have read Krista's bylines in the Condé Nast Traveller, LA Times, Travel and Leisure and Taste Made, or you may have seen her on Hell's Kitchen, Top Chef Masters, Knife Fight or The Today Show. What's evident with Krista is her huge passion for food and her infectious enthusiasm when she tells food-related stories from around the globe. We first encountered Krista from her podcast, Fork in the Road. And we were delighted to be invited on to speak about the burgeoning non-out category, our optimist product line, mental health and many other things. So now in turn, we're stoked to have her join us as we gradually emerge from a year wrought with devastation on the travel and hospitality industries. We're going to talk about emerging trends in food and beverage, what recovery might look like, and the importance of storytelling. Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's such a treat to be here. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you with us, and we're really excited to hear about your take on optimism, your culinary history, the future of food, the current state of things in the US and beyond. So uh, that's quite a lot to cover, actually, isn't it? It is just here, and I'm like, oh my God, do I really know all those things? I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. I'll be an optimist and say, you know what? I'll take a stab at it. Well, we can start there then. What, what, we, we like to ask people who come on, do you think of yourself as an optimist? What's your take on optimism? What does it mean to you? Oh, gosh, um, I definitely would consider myself an optimist. Um, people have called me sunny in the past and perhaps to a fault. You know, to me, optimism is all about maintaining a sense of hope and gratitude amidst challenges, amidst the dark times, which we're seeing, obviously, a lot of those in the past year. Um, I think it can be a real exercise in mindfulness, you know, because we're constantly being bombarded by news and social media, you know, you're constantly seeing these images of hate and violence and global despair and destruction. But I try and remember that for every one of those things, there are at least one or two people on the other side that are working twice as hard to combat them. Um, that just really aren't being highlighted in a significant way. Uh, so I think that's kind of a, you know, important part of keeping that optimist attitude alive is just kind of keeping things in perspective. Uh, and, you know, Dre, I know that mindfulness may be one of your things. I know they study that over at UCLA. It's just that's really trying to kind of acknowledge those thoughts and acknowledge that information that I'm taking in and acknowledging it for what it is, but also trying to think of the positive counterpoint to that sort of the yin and the yang. Uh, it's, it's funny because if people, when they call me sunny or they say, oh, you're such an optimist, you're an eternal optimist. They say it in a negative way so many times. Like, I feel like there's this whole idea of like toxic positivity out there right now. and I would actually argue that it's not like vapid or ditzy from a cognitive standpoint. Like it's actually much more difficult to choose happiness than it is to default to anger. Um, and it really is like a muscle that needs to be maintained. And it, like, it is, it is just difficult feeling it, you know, and putting that into practice. So yeah, I would say I'm an optimist for sure. This past year has presented lots of challenges for people in the hospitality industry, uh, in the food industry. And before we kind of go into your own story has that affected you in in any way by proxy by being so much part of it yeah i mean in the last year we've just seen this hospitality industry and the food system as a whole just completely collapse and i think we became increasingly aware of what a house of cards it was you know we always knew that it was unstable we always knew it was unsustainable but i think this past year really highlighted just how unstable it was. And uh, again, I think, you know, you could easily focus on like the lack of leadership, the lack of help from the government, government assistance to people within the hospitality industry, the food system and how fragile it is. And, and, you know, the real disregard for not just like the land, but the people who are tending to the land and keeping us fed, you know, the fact that they're not given hazard pay when they're out there literally like picking grapes at a fire line, you know, when there's, you know, fires up in wine country due to climate change you're seeing these things so much more and in a way that we couldn't ignore them that I'm trying to maintain the sense of like, okay, people are seeing this and you just can't ignore it anymore. Like there's no way of turning back the hands of time and unseeing these things. And so I think that hopefully, especially with our new administration in place, like we're going to start seeing some actual um, real sustainable, tangible change. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you and sugarcoat it. It's been really hard to see it. It's been really hard to be a part of it. I mean, it was my job. I was, you know, covering the world of food, global culinary culture. I was on the road all the time, you know, at least, you know, internationally, at least once a month, you know, um, in some really incredible places, but I travel a lot throughout Asia and the Pacific as well as Latin America. And it's like those places have been just decimated by the lack of tourism. Um, and there's a lot of complexity to like people to start, start up tourism too quickly back there. So, it, you know, it's just been really hard to see and to watch. And it's also just, it's been, at first it was hard to be at home. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. It's very foreign. Uh, but now I'm exploring some of these places that are a little bit closer to home and, and really having an appreciation for just like a, having a home that's comfortable and being able to quarantine, you know, in a space that I enjoy, but also having the ability now as things are sort of improving, people are getting vaccinated. There's a little bit more of the hope of herd immunity, um, being able to come to places like, you know, Palm Springs or San Inez Valley and writing guides for people so they can kind of re-explore their own backyard. I'm really enjoying that. Krista, it's illuminating to hear you talk about your optimism, your sunniness as uh, something that is a choice, that there's this intentionality and sometimes uh, some difficult problem solving related to that. Often we are shaped by our early experiences, and I'm wondering how you developed this outlook. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up, uh, what your upbringing was like, and, and did any of those experiences shape this like sunny outlook you talk about? Yeah, gosh. Uh, well, I feel like in a way, you know, growing up in Southern California, it is actually like a, a very, you know, sunny place, right? Um, so there's, there's that part of it. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles and my parents were both teachers. They were both LAUSD educators. Um, and I'm very proud of that because they dedicated their lives to, you know, teaching young kids and helping, you know, shape, shape their futures. Um, I think that that spirit of like hoping to sort of share information and inspire people is something that I still do today, just kind of in a different form. Um, but I think like it, it also was, you know, I think people associate like living in Los Angeles, growing up in Los Angeles, you're, you know, in Beverly Hills and it's like the rich kids of Beverly Hills. Like it was not like that at all. They were both teachers. Like my, we didn't dine out a lot, which is a surprising to some people. People kind of assume like, oh, you, you write about food. Like you must've been traveling the world since you were a little kid. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like we didn't, we didn't have a lot. And I think that, um, despite all of that, and my, my dad actually worked in, um, some pretty tough neighborhoods at the time he worked in the riots. I remember him going to work, like putting on a bulletproof vest to go work, you know, trying to get kids in really rough neighborhoods to get back into school. You know, it was scary to see that. Right. But like, it gave me some sense of perspective, like, wow, you know, I, here I am complaining about whatever it is a kid, you know, young girl complains about, like, I want, you know, X, Y, Z toy, Barbie, whatever it may be. And like, these kids are dealing with something like so much more <laughs> extreme than what I can even begin to comprehend. It really kind of, I think maybe give me a sense of perspective as to like, you know, how lucky I really was without even really knowing it, you know, kind of having that sense of gratitude. And my parents were also like insanely hardworking, I should say, like they were both, you know, working full time. My brother and I were athletes. So we were, you know, after school having to go to practice for, you know, two when I was in two to five hours a day when I was in college or excuse me, when I was in high school swimming. So they were there for all of that. And, um, they just worked so hard still to this day. I can't get them to sit down. Like they're such busy bodies. <laughs> so I think that definitely has like, now it's, it's been instilled in me. Like I'm just a hustler, like constantly hustle, hustling. Um, yeah. And I, I think, again, to kind of like come back to your question they you know, being an educator, you have to have that sense of optimism. You have to have hope that what you're doing is like going to be for the greater good of these, you know, the kids, the future. Right. And so, um, I think it'd be almost impossible for that not to have impacted me in some way in what I'm doing now. And you've got, you've chosen to channel your passion and your energy and dynamism into food and travel. Where did, where did that fascination begin? Where did you start to build a kind of relationship and realize that that's something that you wanted to do, not just for fun, but actually really as, as a, as a way of living. 
you know, again, I want to pretend like we were going to Capri every year. Like we didn't have that. My family was like road trip family, you know, uh, but my mom was an amazing cook. She is an amazing cook. And we had family dinner every night. And some of my first memories are in the kitchen with her, you know, learning to make bolognese or her salsa. Like she, to this day, makes some of the best salsa in LA. And like, that's saying a lot (laughs) that a white woman makes the best salsa in Los Angeles, but she really, it's incredible. Um, So I think, you know, the fact that we every night would get together and gather around the table and have dinner together. And that that was something that was like, it was a given, like you, you were having family dinner. If the phone rang, you weren't taking a phone call during dinner. You, we always said grace before meals. Like it, food was like a very important part of, of our life. Um, and I didn't really realize that that wasn't the way things were until you, you know, you grow up and you start going to your other friends' houses and you're like, Oh, you guys are eating TV dinners and like frozen food. And you're like, Whoa. And you, you watch television while you eat, like, Oh my God, like, why aren't you sitting at the dinner table? Um, so I didn't really realize that until as I started, like, you know, started to get a little bit older. And I think too, like just, you know, the, the way that my mom cooked really shaped a lot of how I view food. And, uh, she cooked a lot of vegetables. They were big health nuts. Um, growing up, <laughs> like they, we weren't allowed sugar cereal. My mom had, you know, it was always a vegetable on the table. It's California, right? So we're very lucky in that sense that we had access to that, of course. Um, that was definitely a privilege. But, uh, you know, I think that certainly shaped the way, the type of food that I like to eat, the type of stories. I love writing stories about farms, where things come from. I myself ended up, you know, working in wine and then woofing, uh, volunteering on organic farms for a little over a year. So like, I love, I don't know, I, I love that sort of um, again, this is sort of like, it's very like California kind of lifestyle of really being connected to food and, and stories that are kind of related to that. It's amazing. And you mentioned last time we spoke, you mentioned being an athlete, you have a quite a high level swimmer at college, I think. Yeah. I know at some point when you, if you're swimming for a few hours a day, there's a point where food is, it's just a necessity. It's not necessarily something you sit down and make a big ritual over. It's something that you need as, as fuel. How, how did that affect in any way, you know, how you think about uh, eating and drinking? Gosh, yes, it is an absolute necessity. I mean, you're swimming for five hours a day, you're getting up really early, you know, um, and especially in college too, you know, Drea, you're around college students. Like there's something that happens when you escape your home and you're just like, oh, I can eat whatever I want, <laughs> you know? So like the dining hall is dangerous, um, but especially for somebody, you know, you read about the Michael Phelps diet and it's like very true. I mean, I certainly wasn't as ex- extreme as that, but I mean, you're working out that often and you're still, you know, I was still growing at the time. Um, it's a lot. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a lot. And I, it, you know, it took a couple of years too, like for my, my metabolism, I guess, or not even my metabolism, but those eating habits that I formed to catch up with the fact that my metabolism was no longer needing <laughs> those calories. So it was like, Oh my God, I like everyone gets the freshman 15. I got the 15 after I quit swimming. Cause so it was just like, wow, I was still, you know, eating as if I was working out five hours a day and I definitely was not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, another part of it too, is like having that we would do during season, there was a, you know, any, depending on how long the season was a three to six month time period where we weren't allowed to drink, which in college, you know, that's like, you know, that's everybody else's sport is drinking and party. <laughs> so um, I kind of got used to having these sort of stints of sobriety, which, um, you know, so to the point of what you guys are doing, I think it's really interesting because we didn't have alternatives. Like, I mean, there was like O'Doul's or whatever, but if you wanted to be at a party, it felt very exclusionary. So I ended up just kind of like hiking a lot or, you know, running or whatever, just finding other ways. But you, it was really hard to be in college and not be drinking, especially in Santa Cruz too, where there's like, it's, it's, you know, it's a weed smoking school. And we definitely could not be doing that because our lungs obviously for swimming are so important. So it was hard. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I think I still have a healthy appetite, I guess, as to how it relates now. It's like, I, I, I love to, you know, I, I love to stay healthy. I think that that's also really important to me is like maintaining that balance. Like when you are eating and traveling for a living, I've seen people, I mean, like one of our greatest food writers, Pulitzer, the first Pulitzer Prize winning food writer, Jonathan Gold, he was a martyr to his craft. Like he died because of the fact, like, it's sad. He just didn't, you know, take, care of himself really he was you know doing you know doing what he loved and doing it so well but like it's so important to maintain that balance I think and so I still really try to keep that going you know especially now as I'm getting older (laughs) it's harder your mention of O'Doul's reminds me that there was a time when there was like one option for a non-alc drink 
Uh, so that brought me back to the sadness, <laughs> like our choices. I don't know if that's going to be on the show, but I, my that part of my brain that was like, oh yeah, O'Doul's, the one thing yeah. you, could, you could drink. Um, right. Yeah. My uncle used to drink it. He actually was, uh, to be very candid, um, you know, my family struggles with uh, depression, bipolar and alcoholism are like rampant, especially on my dad's side. And I'm, you know, I'm open about talking about it some of some folks on his head of family are not, but my uncle was sober for a really long time. And so I remember seeing those, uh, O'Doul's in the, in the fridge and he'll now, you know, have a cocktail from time to time. But I remember being like, what's that all about? I was like, it's like, why would you want to drink a beer and not have it get you drunk? But you know, when you're a kid, you don't understand it, but now I totally get it. Cause you want to be part of that, like social, they've been entertaining family, my, my aunt and uncle on, on that side. And they just love to have people over. And so it was kind of a part of him staying connected to the experience and to, to everybody else, but oh, they taste it terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the, the drastic, significant adjustments we all had to make in the last year. Now, I am imagining that the pandemic had a huge impact on the work that you do. And actually, as I was exploring your podcast and your, um, you know, your life's work, I, I thought to myself, I was reminded of a more recent theory in the field of psychology, which is called broaden and build. So broaden and build is this concept that we are happier, like we have higher levels of joy and happiness when we are experiencing novelty, uh, new activities, when we're kind of like stretching the limits of our curiosity and and going out there. And, And your travel and your work really reminded me that that is so important during this time. And yet... This was a huge challenge for a lot of us. Um, there were lockdowns. You know, travel was restricted. We couldn't eat out at restaurants. Um, so, exploring these new food cultures and meeting new people and sort of having that novelty wasn't as accessible. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to pursue this work? And and also, like, what do you think about that theory? Do you think that applies for you? Oh gosh, I love that broaden and build. That's literally like my life. And in fact, like I'm a little bit of a dopamine junkie in that way where I'm like, I want the new, I think, I'm, I don't know if that's kind of behind the theory, like what's chemically happening in your brain, but it seems like it would be that like sweet little rush of serotonin and dopamine from when you're doing something new and unexpected. It's very like gratifying. Um, it was a huge shift, a huge, huge shift for me, because like I said, it was constantly exploring new places, meeting new people, meeting people who were doing incredible things in incredible parts of the world, visually stunning places. You're just like, it was just complete overwhelm, sensory overwhelm when I was traveling as much as I was before. Um, languages, you know, you're hearing new languages. I miss so much like hearing a foreign language or looking at a menu and having no idea what it says, <laughs> you know, and like trying to figure it out. Like, I love that. I'm, I'm very much a curious person. So that definitely applies to me. Um, it's been a real exercise to try to find that broaden and build in my life now under lockdown. Uh, it's possible though, especially in a place like Los Angeles. I think number one, we're so blessed with this incredible diversity of people that make this city what it is like LA would not be at Los Angeles without these incredible immigrant communities and and places you can eat that it also have been so heavily impacted by the pandemic, by racism, by xenophobia. So it's almost like you can even feel good going to support them because you're like, you know, you're not only are you like exploring a new type of food, but also like you're helping somebody who's been like really heavily hit. Like we've, we're hurting, but like, let's talk about hurting like Chinese restaurants in Los Angeles have been disproportionately impacted. So you can go and explore something new, a regional cuisine that like, frankly, if you were living anywhere else in the country, you might have a hard time finding Xi'an food or finding, you know, Shanghainese dumplings or finding, you know, but you can find that it's all like right in the San Gabriel Valley. So it really helped me um, like reground myself and just re, you know, re-explore, rediscover my own city and also explore stories within my own city. Like I've, I've covered LA, I've, you know, for 10 plus years, I've covered food in Los Angeles, but again, in the past couple of years with all the producing I was doing, I was on the road all the time. So, you know, as, as much as I was still, you know, living here, technically it was my home base. I wasn't exploring it as much. 
Um, so it's kind of like a creative exercise, like, okay, where can we go to try something new? How can we do it safely? What are the parks? I've discovered all these parks that I like didn't even know existed that we could eat outside with my friends, you know, where can we have wine in the park? Um, that's been fun. And also like re-exploring my love of wine. I actually got into all of this through working like in the wine industry. It's kind of a chunk of the story I left out there, but I was working in, in wine in Santa Cruz. And then after that, thought I wanted to go get a degree in viticulture, enology, and then at the time they were like, before you go to Davis and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on this degree, you should go work in a vineyard to see if you actually like that. So I left and went to Australia for a little over a year and um, Southeast Asia and started just like working on farms and then taking photos and writing about it. And so it kind of like led down this like completely different path. <laughs> um, but yeah, in this time, one thing that I could do, well, I couldn't be on the vineyard, I could be trying lots of new wines. So I'm actually going to be going to get my WSET education. So furthering my education in wine, kind of returning to that. I've been reading so much about, you know, wine and doing little, like wine club memberships and stuff like that. So that's kind of been a, a fun thing. My liver doesn't love it as much as I do, but <laughs> so be it. Something's got to give. It sounds like you worked in various different ways in the in the food industry early on in life, and then you seem to have kind of married it with this love of storytelling. And you're a great storyteller. And I even just hearing you talk there, you managed to find the story in every element, lots of different corners of the food and and drink industry. Um, were you ever tempted to set up your own restaurant or uh, bar, or is it the storytelling that is the inspiration for you? Gosh, I feel like if you want to own your own restaurant or bar, you are a complete masochist. <laughs> like it is the toughest industry. I, I, it's a labor of love, and that's why it hurts so much to see these people struggling so much because the margins for profit are so small, and you have to really love hospitality. You have to really love first and foremost people to be a great restaurateur. And secondly, serving and then also have like an incredibly strong business acumen, which is where I would probably fall short in that industry. I'm terrible. I'm like not a numbers person. I'm a words person. I'm an images person. I'm very creative in that sense. So um, I never really thought, I mean, when I was younger, I wanted to have a roller skate restaurant. I thought that would be really cool. But I was like 10 years old with my friend. As soon as I realized like what a financial nightmare it would be to run a restaurant, I decided no. Um, I did go to culinary school though, but I went not because I wanted to be a chef, but because I wanted to write about food in a more educated way. Um, at the time I was doing much more like criticism style work. Um, and I wanted to be able to really like understand from a technical standpoint, like what was happening on the plate. I also love to cook. So I kind of wanted to just like understand like the, the groundwork of what I was working with. Um, but yeah, I realized then even more so when you're like realizing how much of it is actually just like doing dishes <laughs> and like cleaning. It's like, eh, this isn't as sexy as I thought it would be. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, my hat goes off to people who are working restaurants and I'm glad I have that perspective. You know, I've worked in front of house quite a bit um, in, in wine at bars, you know, hosting, whatever. Uh, and I just like have no, especially being a chef. It's just like, man, I salute you, but that is not my calling. <laughs> Your, your love of narrative and very natural kind of storytelling ability, which seems to come from an understanding of the food and drinks industry, but also just a kind of curiosity to, to sort of work out what's behind it and give perspectives. And I listened to your uh, most recent podcast last night about the Belcampo uh, group, who had, I thought it was fascinating. There's a lot being written about Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods being the future of the food industry. And it was very interesting to hear a perspective from a um, someone who's working with livestock and talking about environmental impact and just giving a kind of nuanced view on that particular area. The storytelling that you kind of apply is is that is that the kind of main motivation? What what drives the kind of need to tell stories in the way that you do? Because you you're taking on some quite big challenging things and 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 finding substance in them um it's not sort of surface level food writing it's not just a kind of a four star five star review here and there it's a go here don't go here you're really kind of uncovering a lot more in terms of how you're working where do, where did the love of story or where's the motivation for storytelling come from i think you know 
you talked a little bit about reviewing uh, and giving stars reviews. I have done that and I just didn't love it because it felt like so often you were just looking for faults in something. I guess that kind of comes back to my optimist outlook, right? Where it's sort of, I, I would really much rather go to places and talk to people and taste things and find the good about it, right? Like it's this industry is so difficult, like we just discussed. It it's like, why bother tearing someone down? There's so many interesting stories out there that you can tell that don't have to be, uh, you know, huge investigative takedowns, which I think obviously investigative reporting is incredibly important and reviewing is very important. It's just like not the style of storytelling that I'm drawn to. I'm really drawn to that curiosity, um, learning something new, hearing the backstory behind something that you might find commonplace, um, you know, or something that's sort of undiscovered. I love being like the truffle pig, like finding what's underneath the surface, you know, diving a little bit deeper, um, exploring culinary cultures that may be up and coming, or uh, again, like backstory to things that we kind of take for granted or have come to us in a different iteration in Los Angeles. Um, hearing things that are like big ideas. I, I love the podcast for that reason. And, you know, you guys are doing this right now, letting me ramble on and on. Like, I love the fact that you can, in a podcast, you can talk to somebody for an hour and they get to say the whole thing. Like with the content that I was doing, and I still do, you know, for Connie Nast or for my own channels, a lot of that is so short form. Like my videos that I have been doing are two, three, five minutes long. And it's like, you're trying to distill the culinary culture of Jalisco, you know, which is like so broad and so rich and so diverse and has so many different characters. And you know, all the things that are Mexican are there, but you have to put that into like five minutes. It doesn't even make sense. You get one sound bite from someone, they get like two seconds to say what it is that they think and it's done. Whereas this podcast format I love because I get to talk to someone like Anya that you mentioned and she can really flesh out an argument because that is a huge argument right like I'm surprised the vegans haven't come after me for that one because she's talking about climate positive cattle ranching which is diametrically opposed to everything we hear in the news about cattle ranching and beef is that it's destructive methane gas you know it's killing animals it's not kind it's but the way that she's doing it actually counterpoints i mean a lot of those arguments so I, I just think that this format is so cool because you allow people to really like give you know give them a space to discuss what they're really all about and then poke holes in it too you know let's talk more about your podcast it's called fork in the road and it sounds as though you wanted to have richer conversations or or sort of broaden these these uh, these briefer moments and I'm curious to learn from you what sparked the podcast and um, what do you enjoy about podcasting versus all these other activities that might be fulfilling for you? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, well, I'd wanted to start a podcast for the longest time. And again, I was in this like full blown rat race mode. You know, it, I was just, you know, it was plugging and playing. I had all these great clients going and it was on the move constantly and it was awesome. But adding something else, I, I work in a really small team with my production company, similarly named Fork in the Road. So again, we'd be out producing video, I'd be doing written content, social media content, and it was myself and my brother, maybe one or two other people, depending upon the scale of the project. But we were just like, we're, I'm used to being bootstrapped, like, you know, again, my parents are incredibly hardworking. So I would just, it was doing the most with the least, but there was no room. There was no time to like add in another thing. And as you know, podcasting is not just as simple as like a clubhouse where you turn it on and you talk and it's done. Like there's pre-production and post-production and, you know, all of the logistics. Like I, I, and I was doing that all on my own at the beginning, which was a terrible mistake. Uh, but anyway, um, when the pandemic hit and I was grounded, you know, my brother who has been, you know, such a, compadre a champion like he's always just you know rooting for me i was really feeling like oh my god everything's crumbling my industry is falling apart like what am i going to do i was just in complete you know quite frankly like mentally not in a good place and he was like you should start a podcast you should start a podcast and you should write a book I haven't read the book yet but we're getting there <laughs> um and i was like you know what you're right and i started researching it and uh you know, I was like, all right, cool. So like May, May 8th, uh, you know, kind of did the whole docket, figured out the topics that I want to talk about. And I realized like, hey, you know, you can't have these big conversations about big ideas in the world of hospitality and, you know, give give people something 
inspiring to look to right now. And so we've talked about everything from, you know, how to build your own victory garden to speaking with the folks at the Lee Initiative who are like literally feeding the hospitality industry right now. Um, it's like Paul Feig on cocktailing and you guys about, you know, zero proof spirits. And it's like stuff that I would have pitched to an outlet and they would have been like, mm, maybe, maybe, maybe so, maybe no. If it was a yes, it'd have to be in their format and it'd have, you know, it has to be like this. And well, it's got to be a guide or it's got to be a top 10, da, 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 da. And in this way, it's like, there's a freedom in the form. And I just really, I love it so much. I'm, I, I'm definitely like, I feel like this is, I finally am like finding my voice you know, literally and figuratively finding my voice. And I just, I think it's such an awesome medium. I, I think you can tell when listening to the podcast, I think that your just your enthusiasm in so many different directions in food and drink, it just, it just comes across so authentically. And I'm really interested, you tackle some really interesting challenges and there's some big food trends that you've identified and behavioral shifts that have happened, you know, acutely in the last year. What, what are the big ones that you see? Are there some permanent shifts that have happened or has there been some small readjustments? I think everything about the food world has changed and it's never going to go back to the way it was before. It can't. It can't. I mean, we've you know, seen it just completely crumble and we have this opportunity right, to rebuild, which I think is really incredible because, again, so much of it was so totally flawed. It was you know, really taking advantage of a lot of people who, you know, needed work and just, I don't know, I, I think it was just it, it, every step of the way, this industry was flawed. And so I think that there's going to be a real rebuilding, hopefully with some help from the government. Um, in terms of like targeting a couple trends, I think, you know, actually what you guys are doing, like the zero proof spirits, I think, and like entertaining sobriety, um, being California sober, that's something I'm seeing more and more people doing whether it's dry January, whether it's, you know, sober October, whether it's just like tempering back because we all drank so much. I mean, Drea, you can speak to like the volumes of people. I mean, I feel like there was something about 250% of alcohol sales. You're probably seeing the aftermath of that in the clinic. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly the isolation people are experiencing and, and again, the amount of adjustments we're all having to make system-wide and then personally, uh, at, at many different levels is impacting the way people take care of themselves. And some people do turn to alcohol and substances to help manage those moods. It's, you know, it's, I, I think behaviorally, it's been a remarkable shift for sure. We have heard anecdotally, a lot of people have reached out to us and said since launching the brand, oh God, thank, thank God for that. Because I just was, every day, I just wanted at five or six o'clock. I just wanted the day to kind of, finish and, and feel like I was transitioning into my evening I'd endured enough zoom or homeschooling or whatever it was um, and you know whenever that point in your day is uh, that having a signal to show that the evening was started um, and the default for that is is alcohol and having something that isn't was was really helpful for people totally yeah, it's that I think they call it the third space where it's like you have your home you have your work and there's that space in between and for so many people that is the bar for some people it's their commute you know uh for some people it's the gym you know it's signifying okay work day is done but there's a transition to the home um i'm missing having that place be something besides my house i really am um so i think that's something i think you know people keep on talking about the roaring 20s right where like as soon as mm. this is over people are going to be out and and socializing in a way that they have never before and well i think that that is absolutely true i think we're also going to be socializing in so much more meaningful ways because the thing that I've like really realized is like, yeah, I was out and about, you know, again, traveling all the time. When I was here, I was at events all the time. And it's like, do I really want to go back to doing that? No, I actually mm. really want to make sure that on that one night of the week where I am going out, I'm going out with my friends or my family, you know, that I've like really the people I've truly, truly missed that are like my core rock group that I've had to stay isolated from for a full year. And I've only been able to see through Zoom those are the people that I want to be spending my time with. It's like, I think it's lent us a really um, incredible perspective on that of just being like much more intentional with the people we give our time to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I, I think there, there are some real positives to come out of that and just kind of seeing being off the treadmill for a minute and, and then seeing like, actually maybe I can run in that direction rather than just kind of keep cranking on this treadmill, I think is really interesting for, for people. 
One thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is um, is food and a better future because I know that there's been some real challenges in this last year for the the whole food bar restaurant industry and we've been watching at home a lot of um, food documentaries so uh, I've got a daughter who's eight we watched a David Attenborough documentary and she's become vegetarian as a result of watching that documentary we also watched um, as a family Lisa and I watched Kiss the Ground um, which is about soil and carbon sequestering and it, and it is a really compelling argument that they put forward there do you think there's a role that food can play in helping build a better future and I guess here we're kind of looking you know it might be socially environmentally politically is there anything that you've you've seen that kind of looks to be positive in that in that way Gosh, uh, I think it has the potential absolutely to connect us emotionally and societally and politically and environmentally. I mean, it really, food really has the power to connect us all. I mean, it has the power to heal not only like us, you know, from a nourishment standpoint, but it has the power to heal land and to mend cultural wounds and to create like interpersonal understanding. And I think it's, one of the few things that can do that. I mean, obviously music is another element that can do that. Art, you know, can do that. And that's why I think food actually like is really, it's, it's not only art, but it's also therapy in a way. Um, It also has the power to do the exact opposite of that. Uh, You know, it can, it can break ties. It can cause tension, uh, you know, social disconnection. Um, But I think we're moving into a world where we're awakened to the fact that 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 is possible but we also have to be really committed to that goodness and that power that it has to heal um yeah i just i i hope i do hope that some of these lessons we're just going to carry carry them on carry them through and just you know not forget what we've what we've seen i mean i just i might I can't express like how grateful I am to the people who are picking our food and who are growing our food, who have been out there putting their lives at risk, but to pretty much like thankless measures um, in warehouses, making sure that, like, I mean, Am- people who work at Amazon, like those are heroes. Those people are absolute heroes. Our society would have completely fallen apart. Like, can you imagine the panic? I mean, we're panic buying, which is such an American thing to do, right? I I just, it's like, wow, it seems like 10 years ago this was happening, but it was just a year ago. We were completely panicking. Like if our food system would have, if we would have shut it down, people would have lost, I mean, we would have been in a complete chaos with, especially under the, you know, administration that we were under and the paranoia and the just like tension that was causing. I mean, we would have had civil war if our food system would have shut down and instead you know, ultimately it is a choice. Like people didn't have to, of course you need to get paid, but like they didn't have to be out there doing that. They put their lives at risk. People still, I mean, like the contraction rates of this virus within those systems of, you know, working in warehouses and, you know, closed confined spaces is so much higher. So we're just so, I mean, we're so lucky that that can, you know, that those people were continuing to keep us fed. Have you noticed anything in, in the current administration in the, with the new administration just coming into power now, have you noticed anything uh, tangibly different from the people that you've been speaking to in the food um, and beverage industry in terms of how that's being treated or even signaling um, any positive change coming forward? Yeah, you know, I, I should do some more research on this, frankly, but I do know that one of the, the restaurant relief bills has been passed tentatively. I know that we've got another round of PPP that's coming through. Um, I'm seeing hearing that there's going to be more relief. I think we're waiting on another bill right now. Currently, I'm not sure when this is going to air. We're waiting for that big stimulus. So I I just think that like the general sentiment of the current administration and just like the way that uh, our, our now president Biden speaks about people and speaks about all people with like a genuine dignity and respect, that alone is a huge shift because again, like the, the othering of people from our previous president, just, and, and the like genuine disrespect specifically for, well, for two communities that are so essential, but to the Latino community who like, li- again, literally feeds us, keeps us fed the way that he spoke about people is just like, how, what is wrong with you? And then how that trickled down. So I think that just like the, just the 
simple like verbiage <laughs> that's being used, I think is a huge shift. Um, and hopefully there's like money to back this all up because ultimately like people, it's really cute. Words are great, but like we need, you know, actual relief. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. I think it's really early to tell. I mean, we've got a huge, you know, the, the, the virus itself is like a number one, we got to get that thing under control. I don't know, we're still seeing the aftermath of the way that our previous president, you know, talked about the Chinese American or the Asian American community. We're seeing all this violence and it's like that those words have real staying power. So I don't know, hopefully we can kind of come back to a center again. Like there's so many people that are working counter to that. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully there's some sort of lasting change there too. Recovery is certainly going to take some time and I'm appreciating your sensitivities toward how, um, I think, as you put it, interpersonal connections happen through these experiences, breaking bread together, um, traveling together, experiencing novelty together. These are so inherent to um, the human ability to empathize and to see other perspectives. And like this, this I would see, I would uh, characterize your work as seeing different perspectives. And I imagine that must have been helpful in healing toward others. And my question right now is, you mentioned that times have gotten tough for you. And I'm curious to learn from you. What have you discovered for yourself that's been healing either mentally or physically? Do you have some practices that you utilize that help you deal with the stress and the challenges that have been presented to you? Gosh. Um, well, as you know, mental health is so important, right? And in this time, we are all being tested in a way that we've never been tested before. And, you know, I think to, to the because of the encouragement of my family members and my brother, I actually went back into therapy for the first time since I was a teenager. And it's funny, like I've always, I don't know, I feel like I've always been like the optimist, the positive person. Everybody always looks to me for like, oh, she'll bring a little like dose of sunshine. And I just, I felt like I had lost all of that because of everything that was going on in the world. I was just like, like really just feeling sad and not sleeping. Um, my sleep patterns, which as you know, are so important to the rest of your mental health and just productivity in general was not sleeping, was constantly waking up in the middle of the night, um, having to rely on melatonin. Like it was just, it was not in a good place as many of us weren't. And I think it's important that like, before I talk about all the like positive practices, like it's important to acknowledge that like I was having a really hard time. Even Sonny Cristo was having a really hard time and it's still challenging. Um, I'm in therapy. I go to therapy once a week. It's via Zoom. I wish it were in person. I want to be like laying on someone's couch and like <laughs> you know, chit-chatting. I, I really like, I love Zoom. I'm so glad we have it, but I really can't wait till I can like have that um, interaction. But that's been really helpful uh, just to have somebody that I know every week I can go to and just kind of openly talk to about these things. And there's no judgment. I will say that therapy is not what I thought it would be, though, because she she said something a couple of weeks ago and I was like, ah, damn it. She's like, your therapist is not here to make the decisions for you. They're here to guide you to make the decision that's right for you. Right. I was like, oh, damn it. Like, I need someone to tell me what to do. But I just I thought that was really um very thoughtful. And she has given me some great tools. Another thing that has been really wonderful is meditating. Um, obviously, Drea, you being at UCLA, you guys have this incredible mindfulness program and doing research in the real true tangible power of that from a science-based perspective. It's amazing. I love it. I'm now meditating every night. I use the Calm app, which is awesome. I love the sleep sounds. Um, when I have trouble and I'll wake up in the middle of the night, there's a, a gently back to sleep meditation that I actually used last night. Um, and that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's amazing. I'm actually sleeping through the night for the first time. And like, it, it, and it, honestly, the sleep problems were before, like, I think that there's so much, and I try to do the turn off the tech that put the phone in another place. I do all the things. Um, and it was, I was still having issues with it. So, but that meditation is really helping. I take a, a bath. I'm now, I have a bath ritual. Um, Someday I will be able to afford the clawfoot bathtub that is here at the hotel in Palm Springs. But look, like even my like rinky dink little bathtub, like I create a, a mood. So I light the candle. I have the, you know, calming music going. I have my little herbal tea. And I use that as that third space we were talking about to sort of like signify the workday is done. The social media is off. The internet is off. The TV is done. We're done with the wine. We're done with all those things. And now we're moving into sleepy land. Um, so that's also been really helpful. Uh, 
I was like running through my checklist with my boyfriend actually about like all the things I need to do to get to sleep and like that we figured out this system and <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty long list, but now I'm, I'm finally, finally sleeping better. So, and, and yoga and meditation and, and also exercise, I also should say is such a huge for me, like being an athlete, like if I'm not working out, my mindset isn't great. Again, those like great endorphins and dopamine and all that jazz. Um, I have a water rower that I'm using now, which is awesome and some weights. And so until I can get myself back into a gym, which will probably be some time, um, I'm just really trying to make sure that, you know, three or four times a week I'm, I'm working out. It's just essential for me. And it calls upon, as I hear you talk about these formulas for wellness that are just right for you, the, the concept that you are not just sunny by default, like you, you have come to realize, and maybe the folks around you have come to realize that there is this choice-making, there's intentionality, there's this, um, there's this formula that you turn to. Uh, it isn't a passive sort of default that you just happen to be sunny. And this lesson that, you know, I'm learning that I'm, as I'm hearing this from you and hopefully as others here, um, can perhaps be helpful for an understanding that optimism isn't just a, a simple way of, of being or a simple way of thinking that there's a tremendous amount of self-direction and motivation and it's hard work. I mean, I appreciate you detailing all of the things that you're working on. It's hard work. So I appreciate that you're doing that. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's maybe sort of, I think that's the difference between toxic positivity and optimism because toxic positivity is applying this blanket sentiment of everything's going to be great. And also responding to others when they're bringing to you their traumas, their issues, hitting them back with sunny. And that's just not the way it is. Like optimism is seeing those negative things, acknowledging them, working through them, and then choosing to still believe in hope. And that, oh my God, I thought swimming five hours a day was hard. This is the ultimate exercise. <laughs> What a great place to um, uh, get get to in this conversation. What a really uh, fascinating. Um, I think I think it's so true. It just it, it takes so much work to to get to to being optimistic. And I think what you say is like you know I think if you're going to genuinely show up and be optimistic, there's a ton of work and, and do that genuinely, not in a projected way, not in a false way but in an authentic way, there's actually probably quite a lot of work that has to be done before you kind of enter the room <laughs> that is, um, you know, a combination of physical, mental well-being that allows you to be in that state authentically rather than just kind of project something. I think that's a really interesting, um, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a lot of work that goes into it. As we wrap, and it's been a great conversation today, I've really enjoyed hearing about your authentic story and, and, your, you know, where your energy comes from. Is there any track or book or film that you've watched recently or read recently or, or a podcast that you've heard recently that has given you inspiration? It's been uplifting or it's just been a great thing. Gosh, well, you mentioned a couple really great ones. I mean, that David Attenborough series is, he's just like the goat. Um, so if you can guys can take a look at that, I would recommend it. Um, two films that I've loved recently that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily directly about like mental health or optimism or well-being, but are just like really beautiful and will take you into another world of escape, which I think we all want right now. Um, the first one is Truffle Hunters, which is a documentary. It's currently out and not to like shamelessly plug here. I actually just interviewed the directors yesterday for the podcast and it's visually stunning. Um, it's in, take, it takes place in Piedmont and in, uh, in Italy. And there are these old, 80, 90 year old truffle hunters that are still speaking the regional dialect of the Piemontese and these, their dogs and their intimate relationship with their truffle hunting dogs. And I'm like a huge dog lover. Like, by the way, when we talk about like mental health, my dog is like my ultimate emotional support animal. I don't know what I do without Bento. Um, but these relationships that these truffle hunters have formed with their dogs to the point where the dog eats at the table with them. And is, you know, it's so, it's so tender and intimate and it takes this really beautiful place, like visually stunning place. It's like, you're almost coming entering this like picture book of Italy um, and of Piedmont and of this like incredibly rare ingredient and there's fog and trees and forests. And it's very like ponds labyrinth. It's just really, really beautiful. And 
thankfully you can see it in a drive-in theater. So you can actually see it on a big screen now, which is a real treat. We're finally going to have films on big screens. <laughs> like I miss it so much. Um, really gorgeous. So that's out right now. Um, they're up for an Oscar, uh, shortlisted for a uh, best documentary. So really like quality stuff. Um, and also just like lovely filmmakers. And then also uh, Minari, which is very controversial right now. It uh, is a film by a Korean American filmmaker about sort of semi-autobiographical semi about this family um, that moved from a Korean American family that moved from California to, I believe it was Arkansas to start a farm and against all odds, you know, started this farm. And it's about the intimate relationship between the kids and the, the grandmother, you know, who'd come over from Korea. So it's this multi-generational sort of story and the, the disconnect between, you know, those experiences, but also it's just like visually, like, just like beautiful. And I was listening to an interview with the director, Lee Isaac Chung, I believe is his name. He almost gave up. It's such a great the backstory. How this film got made is incredible because he had like, dreamed of being a filmmaker his whole life and you know against the will of his Korean parents they just you know it's like a creative endeavor my parents never understood what I did either they're like uh my dad once called it creative crap love him to death but now he finally gets it now that there's like success behind it anyway <laughs> um uh, so this family moves to Arkansas and builds this farm and it's just so beautiful but he'd almost given up Lee Isaac Chung had almost given up like on movies writing films and screenplays and then it just happened that he was at this film festival in Busan in Korea he was teaching English at the time and it got picked up and made and like to the screen within a year and now it's like the film of the year it's so, so beautiful but the fact that it was like just, you know, don't give up on your dreams. You turn 40, there's this like pressure around turning 40, you know, oh, I gotta be doing the thing. Okay, it's time to have a real job. And it just goes to show you like, just don't give up. And it's a very personal story too. So it's like, I think when you do something that comes from the heart and is really true to who you are, those are the things that are going to be recognized and, and you know, appreciated. You know, people, it'll resonate with people. Wow, I'm gonna watch both of those two this weekend. They sound like essential... Uh, viewing. Krista, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thanks for coming on Optimist in Progress and for your fantastic energy and delicious storytelling. Keep doing what you're doing. It's inspiring so many people. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you guys. It was a real treat. I appreciate it. It was so great to chat with you, Krista. I've learned so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Optimist in Progress, a podcast from Optimist Drinks presented by me, Tom Johnston, and Dr. Drea Letamendi. For this episode, I'd like to thank travel and food writer, producer and podcaster Krista Simmons for her energy and openness. For more from Krista, listen to her podcast, Fork in the Road, or follow her on Instagram at Krista Simmons. You can check out her website, kristasimmons.com. Other thanks, as always, go to Reginald Science Perry for the original music, Brian Ward, our editor, Optimist in Progress is carefully researched by Lisa Farr Johnston and artfully produced by Natalie Parrish. Follow us at Optimist Drinks or visit our website, optimistdrinks.com, to find out more about our mission and other tools for optimists. Keep up the optimism practice. Thanks for listening.